Hello, my beautiful people, and welcome to Up Level Together podcast, place to up level in every aspect of your life, from personal development to mindset and spirituality to business tips and relationships building. We bring you best interviews, tools, and inspiration where one episode can change your whole life. Here's your host, Yasna Borza. Rosie, welcome to the Up Level Together podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be joining you and your listeners today. I am beyond excited simply because you and I have been talking about having this podcast and having this conversation for a long time. And I think that um, our listeners today are really in for a treat because we're going to talk about the things that we don't talk about in our world world's lives very often and yet i think that they're the most fundamental things that we should be discussing so i'm just so incredibly excited but you've done this work for a very 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 long time i would love for you to tell us a little bit more about the experiences and end of life social worker as you worked in in palliative with palliative work in hospice and the hospitals and tell us about that and also your reasons, your personal reason for starting a better ending. Okay. Um, well, I, I think it all formally started out or officially started out about um, over a decade ago when I was going through this quarter life crisis, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what do I do? What is my purpose? How can I help the world? So I started volunteering um, at a a few different spots and one of them happened to be a hospice agency. And within a few short visits, I just knew that this was it, that I had found my space, that I had found a population and a clinical need that I had such a heart for and that I really wanted to invest my life into. So I also discovered in that journey that amongst all of the helping professionals that I am a true social worker. Mm -hmm. I am not a psychologist. I am not a nurse. I am not a doctor that who I am um, and how I can care for people is definitely through the lens of a social worker. So knowing that social work is the path I wanted to go down, um, I enrolled and got my master's at the St. Kate St. Thomas School of Social Work. Um, It was a wonderful program. And, you know, one of my favorite things about it is the umbrella of social work practice is so large that they really allowed us to pick topics related to presentations, projects, or papers that aligned with what our clinical practice was going to be. So while there wasn't an emphasis in death, dying, grief, and loss at the program, I, I created one. Because I knew going into that program that I only wanted to work with people with chronic illness, terminal illness, or those struggling with grief and loss. Um, And so when I left the program, I really felt prepared to dive into that. I mean, not only had I done so much research and studying and reading and writing, but I had also had some more hands-on experience. So my internships during that program um, were centered on supporting caregivers who are caring for somebody going through a bone marrow transplant or working um, in patient palliative care where you're supporting people with chronic illness and the people they love the most and helping them navigate their illness. Um, So as soon as I graduated, I naturally jumped into a career in hospice. Through the last seven, eight years, I worked um, primarily in hospice, but also did some um, clinic work in an oncology setting and also did um, a bit more inpatient palliative care as well, too. Um, The hospice time was really split between doing work in the community. So when somebody's enrolled in hospice, um, they have a team that comes out into their home that includes social workers and nurses and chaplains and um, in home health aides. And we surround people with this holistic team to help support them through their final journey. So um, I had the honor of being that social worker for many patients and, and their families too. Hospice is such family-centered care that you really can't be caring for the, the patient or the individual without pulling in their support system. 
I also think it's really important to note that like, as we talk and go through this today, when I talk about family, I'm not just talking about biological family. And I think that's a really important distinction to make. Um, people have chosen families. I call mine my psychological family. And these are people that maybe didn't raise us or have the same bloodline as us, but are just as important to us in our day-to-day -day lives and especially in, uh, in the end of our life. Um, so the other part of my hospice experience was um, working inpatient. So I was a clinical hospice liaison. And what that means is I worked with individuals and their loved ones in kind of one of two situations. Either they were considering hospice as a choice for them. Um, they were kind of at a crossroads where they could continue to do curative treatment, restorative care, or we could transition to a more comfort focused approach. So um, I've sat with hundreds of, of individuals as they process this decision for themselves. And as we talk things out with the medical team and help them come up with the best plan. For other people um, I served, there really wasn't too much of an option except for hospice. We had come to the end of the road as far as what medicine could do. And we needed to find a plan for them um, outside of the hospital with the support of a hospice team so they could die peacefully. I'm curious, what are some things that, that you have noticed in their work that arise with people dying, right? There was like yeah. actual problems because I think those are the problems that you're right now trying to solve with your own business and with the work in the community. They're just so incredible. So what patterns or problems or issues did you, do you see over and over again? So, I mean, life is complex, right? I mean, life throws stuff at us left and right. Why is death going to be any different? Mm. And, and so, um, I, I could probably talk about this piece alone for probably a, a good chunk of time with you, but some of the main ones that jump out to me are not knowing loved ones wishes. Oh, so, you know, that could be related to medical care. So somebody can still be at end of life and family struggling to transition to that comfort. They don't have that permission from the, the, the patient who can no longer speak to them. So they're questioning, what would they want me to do? What do I do in this spot? And, and that's a really hard place for people to be in. Mm -hmm. They can feel like a decision they make is, is what caused their loved one's death, even though as, as a provider and, and as a clinician, I know that, um, that that's not the case, that it was the disease trajectory, but it's sometimes having to make those decisions that can really complicate um, somebody's end of life, feeling like they're speaking for them, feeling like they're making the decision for them compared to just being their voice and their advocate. So you know, what I'm hearing you say is that people don't have their wishes clearly stated. And then, you know, people who needed to make decisions are in such existential quandary is like what do I well like if I go this and right that's a that's a heavy weight to carry oh, absolutely I mean some of these people when I would sit down with the families and say have you ever had conversations with your mom dad spouse whoever it may be and I was shocked at how many times the answer was just no mm -hmm. like we never talked about it that wasn't a part of our our family dynamic or our family culture and so Again, they're just sitting there with like, what do I do? What do I do? Is it going to be my decision that ends up ending their life? Mm -hmm. And it can just complicate people's grief and make things so much harder for them. And it can complicate the family dynamics too, because what if two people don't agree? So oh you, yeah, you have siblings now that have different perceptions on what is the best best route to go. So now you have conflict within the family there with that, you know, and, and family dynamics are another huge one. I mean, family dynamics can be stressful outside of death and dying. Like I think of, you know, imagine trying to cook Thanksgiving dinner and, you know, all the women in the kitchen talking about like how things should be done or this should be done this way. We're based, we need to base the turkey this way. Like there can be that. And then you, you add it into a context like this, where the stress is so high and the grief is so prominent that it's hard for people to see clearly and, and people grieve differently as well, too. That can be another big thing in family conf and family conflict. 
some people are what they call intuitive grievers, where they're, they're the feelers, they're the criers, they're the ones that express things that way. And other people are more instrumental. They need to be doing something. They need to be busy. They need to, you know, they're not going to express it as much in the emotional sense as they're going to be doing things. And it can be really hard for two people to understand each other. Mm. There's, there's, I feel like the emotional side mm-hmm. overtakes the almost logical one. If we use our logical side before that and had a conversation like this one, many of those problems would have been avoided, which is what I feel like right now you're an advocate in our community. You're waking people up to this reality is that basically you have to have your affairs in order. Otherwise you're causing uh, serious issues in your own passing, preventing you from passing peaceful and also creating discord within families. Yeah. You know, I think another common issue is people just don't know. They don't know what death and dying looks like. They don't know the common symptoms that can go along with that. So thinking of somebody that goes home and has their loved ones taking care of them, you know, they don't know what normal symptoms can look like. And while yes, they have the hospice team to be there to answer questions, they're not there 24 seven, you know? And, and so things can come up that can feel so scary to them that they just don't know. I think there's a lot of misunderstandings too. Uh, for example, pain management at end of life. There are so many people who believe that morphine hastens death. So as, as nurses, I've heard them say, you know, educate about, you know, I think we should get some morphine or a, a specific opioid on board just to help make this person more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, these medicines can help not just with pain, but also with shortness of breath. And breathing irregularities are really common in end of life. So this is one of the best medicines to help with that whole picture. Mm-hmm. And because usually we give that start, you know, especially heavily in the last few days, people are associating that with the cause of death instead of the disease trajectory. Mm-hmm. Although there's been numerous studies that show it does not hasten death. So I think sometimes having information like that can help us at that time where we're so scared to give medicine because we don't want to hasten it, but we don't know that it, it, it doesn't, it right. doesn't do that. What's coming up for me is that we have these ceremonies for the, you know, birth of a child, a yeah. wedding, a transition, a buying a home, like christening. We have all of these different things. And yet for whatever reason, we just don't talk about death or dying in general. And I'm curious, why do you think that is? And what is it that we can do about it? I know you're doing quite a bit with the the work that you're doing right now in the community and with others, but I'm curious, like, why do you think that is? Or why do you know that is? (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, I think this is this is our cultural norm in America. And I from everything I've studied and what I've seen, what I believe how we got here mm-hmm. is in the early 1900s, people died at home. You know, they died surrounded by their family. You know, oftentimes they would stay in the home until the funeral. Like the 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 dead body could lay in 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 the home for days. And it was more of a normal piece. The kids would walk through young kids and they would get exposure to death and dying. They would see it. It wasn't something that was hidden behind closed doors, right? And so as medicine has, it's, it's, it's a good thing, right? Like we have antibiotics, we have chemotherapy, we have all these treatments now that can extend life. So what started to happen is you started to see this drastic shift in like the 1950s and 60s where people were no longer dying at home because if they got sick, we brought them into the hospital to see if one of these new treatments could help. So then dying became institutionalized. It became something that was behind closed doors. It wasn't something in the home. It wasn't something where their grandkid would run through the house and and see grandma dying. It wasn't something that was openly talked about in homes. It, It became this closed door thing, right? And And I think in that process of not being exposed to it, we, we now don't know how to talk about it. Right. So we also lost interesting perspective, but keep going. 
Yeah. So we, we lost the ability to talk about it because we don't know what it looks like. We don't really know what it is unless we really have that direct exposure to it. And, you know, I'm grateful to see that there is a shift coming back. Like it is starting to shift in that other direction. And that makes me so grateful when you look at the amount of people that um, even in 2000s that used to die in the hospital versus at home, these numbers are starting to get to get closer together. Less people are dying in the hospital. More people are dying in their home or in you know a care center that may they may call home like a skilled nursing facility or a hospice home. Mm -hmm. um, so we are starting to see that shift, which makes me really hopeful. My my perception is that's happening because of individuals that had parents that didn't talk about it, that didn't prepare them for it, that, you know, didn't really want to go there. And so I think they are like, no, 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 no. I don't want this for myself. And I'm seeing that even with the clients that I work with, so many of them are in their forties, fifties, and sixties where they're not, they're not terminally ill. They're, they're just wanting to make sure that they are intentional and thoughtful and have a good plan put into place. If something unexpected were to happen, they want to make sure that their kids are not in the same spot they were in. Well, I'm so glad that you're bringing this up and I'm so glad that you're here to help all of us because I know that a lot of family members of mine, um, when it was time to you know talk about, they would never want to address it. Whether it was religious or cultural, it was like, we don't talk about it, right? But it really came to bite them in the behind later on because there were incredible issues that needed to be resolved that could have been resolved in one single conversation. So one of the things to your point that my husband and I did years ago, like we had all of our ducks in a row. Like this is how I want to die. I do not like I don't want a funeral. Like I was so specific about the things that I wanted and I didn't want. Yeah. Also, in talking to you, I'm learning that I may not have things as um, buttoned down, that there are a lot of things that might be I might be missing. So I, I want to talk about that. Um, I think one of the things that you, you were fond of saying is that the good death doesn't happen on accident. Mm -hmm. And I had to reread that all multiple times. Like it's such a, you know, like such a difficult thing to process. What do you mean good death? But it really does make sense. And you said that good death required, it requires introspection and planning and, and conversations. And what does that look like for you? What does that mean? And then we're going to jump a little bit more into some of the other nitty gritty details that I know none of us are thinking about. Yeah, so I mean, I think it's first important to acknowledge that unfortunately not everybody gets the opportunity to plan a good death. Sometimes tragic events happen, unexpected things happen um, that are, are just heartbreaking. But sometimes we do, sometimes we do have that control. You know, sometimes we are aware that we have a progressive illness, whether it be congestive heart failure, kidney failure, or a, a, a incurable cancer that we're not receiving treatment for. Like we know that we have um, these diseases within our bodies that eventually are going to, to, to end our life. And so when we start to know that, how can we, again, start to have some intentional conversations and intentional planning around it? Like you said, we have all these, any big life event we plan for birthday parties, weddings, we have birth plans for people like, but we don't do that for this chapter of life. And, and I just feel like it deserves the same level, if not a greater level of celebration and honoring and intentionality behind that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So how do we do that? How do we have the conversation um, so we can have, you know, have a good death? How do we plan that? How do we start a conversation with our family that does not want to have that conversation or even with our partners who are open to it, but it's just kind of, how do you bring that up? Like, what are your suggestions or best practices to actually have these things figured out? Because I know that for sure, as a reaction to people ahead of us, 
I want my children to, when I pass, that there's absolutely everything that has been planned, organized, they just have to show up. Sure. Right? It's like, yeah. it's kind of like, I want to make it so easy that there's zero burden on them. Because, I mean, let's be clear, you know, we're, I'm talking about this very matter of factly, but death and loss is devastating. Even when we have everything planned out, even when I've looked at that, that this was a good death, this is a wife that lost her husband. Mm. This is a child that lost their mother, right? Like grief is, is all encompassing sometimes. So, you know, I think I, I, I just want to own that as well too, that this is hard stuff. This isn't easy. Mm. You know, I can talk about it with some ease because I've made it my life work you know, but, but for the everyday person, this is not easy to approach. And so I think first is giving us some grace, like giving ourselves some grace that, okay, this is, this might feel, this is probably going to feel uncomfortable. Right. But we also know that growth doesn't come in moments of comfort. Mm. And so I think it first has to start with some self-reflection and you just asking yourself questions like what brings my life quality? And that can be, that it can be, it can be big things like your relationships with your people. It can be your pets. It can also be day-to-day things like being able to live in your own home, being able to physically take care of yourself, um, being able to be mobile, to be able to ambulate and walk around, uh, being able to know who you are and recognize the people around you being able to make meaningful connections right and there are crossroads that come where people can lose those abilities based on again something devastating happening like an accident or a stroke or a a fast progression of an illness that we didn't expect right Mm -hmm. and so having an idea of what brings our life quality and if we were to lose that or if a treatment option were to mean that we couldn't do that anymore, is that something we'd be willing to compromise? Mm-hmm. Is that something that would feel intolerable to us? Um, thinking about what, if I could imagine me on my deathbed, what does that look like? Who's sitting next to me? What music is playing right now? What am I wearing? What am Wait I- a minute. It's like to that detail, this is really exciting, but yeah. this is going to literally blow people's minds because we don't talk about it. Like, what do you mean? What am I wearing? But actually this is so, I, I love this so much. Sorry, I'm interrupting, but- No, it's okay. Yeah. I love when the excitement. When I was giving birth, I had a playlist, right? Mm-hmm. That I played, that I meditated to, to prep myself through it. And I had candles all over the tub because I get, I had a water birth. And it was kind of funny because I really created the most magical environment for for that transition to happen. That you can do that for that. That is, right, barring all unfortunate accidental deaths, but that's actually kind of beautiful. Yeah, And, and that's what I help my clients and their loved ones with is, you know, when, when I sit down and get to know them and get to start talking, we don't start with death. We start with life. Mm. We start with what about their life um, is, is most important to them. What are some of the highlights of their life? Where did they grow up? Tell me about who you are personality-wise. Are you introverted? Are you extroverted? You know, paint, paint the whole picture of who you are because we have to start with what makes your life good and how you've lived so far in order for us to really intentionally plan what a good death for you would look like. Mm -hmm. So it's looking at things within the concept of if we have, you know, the weeks to months left, what are things that are important for us? Maybe it's renewing your vows with your husband. Maybe it's, maybe you are a gardener and you have a handful of grandkids and you want them to come over and we can make garden stones with both of your hands imprinted there. And it's something that you can have that memory and your, your grandkids will also always have that memory too. And then it's also thinking about things within the context of those final hours and days of somebody's life. You know, who, again, who they've always been that shouldn't go away, that shouldn't go like erased from our minds. So if somebody was an introverted that didn't like a whole lot of people around and that kind of overwhelmed them, 
they're probably not going to want 20 people sitting at their bedside in their final hours of life. They're probably going to want the people that are closest to them and love them the most. Hmm. There's some people who don't want people to remember them that way. So they don't want their loved ones around them at all. Hmm. It can be even as intentional as um, when, when you're in the, you know, the final days to hours, your mouth can get really dry. So we have these, these mouth swabs that oftentimes we'll put water in just to add moisture and comfort, um, for the individual. But what if you really loved pink lemonade and you want that flavor in your mouth? That's the flavor you want in your last final days. Like we can get so intentional about each and every detail of this, but again, it has to start with what have, what have you always liked and loved? What has made you, you, and how can we make sure to bring that into the last chapter of your life? So it's really, I think, preferences about, and, and, and sitting down and, and really taking the time to plan according to your own wishes, because it is, it is hopefully one thing that or what we're all going to experience, but that you can actually, I'm going to say this really, but make it as, as good, uh, uh, as good as it gets. So walk me through this when a family comes to you, because right now you're working with families all over the, the, the country really, but you're really focused in right now in the Metro. And when people come to you specifically for, to guide them in person through this, how does their work, right? Apart from, I hear that there is an emotional component. How was your life? Who are you? What kind of legacy you want to leave? Like, what do you want that to look like? And then there's also logistical piece. What is, you know, all of those different things. So how does that, how long does that process take? Who does it involve? And what would be the first step of all of us listening to this of taking that step with you? So I, I think it's important to recognize that I, I work with people in two contexts. The first is people who are wanting, like you, Yasna, are wanting to have your ducks in a row for your kiddos or for your husband. We just never know, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's it's you're, you're you're healthy right now. You don't you're, we don't anticipate that you're going to leave us anytime soon, but you want to reflect on your wishes. You want to have them clearly documented. So if something can happen. So I work with people in that context, just to start getting them comfortable talking about death and dying to start in that planning process. So like I said, in the case of unex something unexpected happens, they, they have something set aside and, and ready to go. Mm -hmm. And then I also work with people who have a life limiting condition. So, you know, they may not be on hospice yet. They may not be ready for that. And that's okay. That's okay. But so how can I, I, I sit down, I, again, start with them. Everyone's individual. Every, you have to teach, treat every single person like the beautiful, unique, incredible human being that they are and the unique family system that they come from. Mm -hmm. So it really starts with those questions and really doing an assessment of what really are their needs here. For some people, it may be much more helping be a mediator with some of these family dynamics. A lot of times it's providing education. Again, we don't talk about death and dying. It's something that a lot of people haven't seen. So when I can prepare them that this is usually what we might see next, this might come our way, you know, and so providing that pre-education to eliminate some of their anxieties because they have an idea of what, what's expected. It's also educating on programs like hospice and palliative care and making sure there's so many misconceptions about both of those amazing, incredible services. So many misconceptions that oftentimes people will say, oh, I don't want hospice and I'm not ready for it yet until we really talk about what it means and what it is, what their rights are, what it can provide and really give thorough education about that. Then oftentimes we'll be like, oh, that's not what I thought it was. Mm, so it, it, the, I think I want to affirm that education piece because you recently held space for me when I lost um, a loved one and I, I really had to sometimes refer to like, well, the, how does this happen or why is this happening? But more importantly, I'm going to out myself right now that was it was as silly as at the funeral. I freaking lost it. I was 
I was sobbing so much so that I was holding it all in when I came out of the the uh, service like I just I was screaming outside because I just couldn't hold it in anymore and I remember Google like is it okay to cry at a funeral and I remember you be like I did you really actually do that I mean of course I know that it's normal but it was it's kind of funny we don't know these things or what are the how to behave and it, because that process of grief, I think, is so individualized and it can feel like we're so lost. So I have seen you firsthand do that and do it so gracefully and beautifully um, in a very nurturing and safe way that I can attest to, to that for sure. And I was not planning for that. It was just processing grief. Well, it was, it was an honor of mine to be there for you and, and give you some of that in a time that you needed it. I think another thing that you needed, Yasna, that you, you got close to saying this, and it's such an important part of my work is permission, mm. giving people permission. Yeah. You know, I remember when we talked on that phone today and I, at that day, and I just gave you the permission to feel everything that you needed to feel. And if you needed to stay in bed for a day or a week or two or three, or however your grief looked like, I gave you permission and to, to do it, what felt good to you. And I, I give permission to the clients and those I work with to talk about death and dying in a world that doesn't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. and um and 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 to say it's it's okay to start planning this isn't morbid it's not morbid to plan what you want for the end of your life it's being thoughtful it's being it is one of the truly one of the greatest gifts that you can give those that you love you know but it's so many times people feel like okay well I can't I can't talk about death and dying because I'm gonna make my family member sad or somehow that's going to make it come into fruition where it's going to happen now in two days. Or, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know how people are going to react when I say it. And, and I just think it's so important to give people permission to talk about death, dying, and what they're scared of. For sure. Well, especially for our audience, I think that we are, majority of my audience are what we were called in that sandwich generation, um, entrepreneur, successful, but we have the kids and the businesses and the responsibilities, and then there's the parents, and we feel like all is coming at us. And I think taking the time to do this right now um, and having a resource in front of us that I think is is um, really imperative that we take the time to do that. And what's so funny is that because you and I are going to work on this, I'm like, I can choose my own music. Like what? I can have a playlist. Like I'm excited. But one of the things I want to ask you, one of uh, what I'm realizing in talking to you is that even the things that I have decided. Are, could be misinterpreted the documents, the healthcare directives. Like, what are those things that we, everyone has to have? Like, here's like girls listening, boys, all, everyone. Here are the things you absolutely have to have before you die. Because I, I, I think that's number one. What are those documents? And number two, that if we just DIY it or if we don't really think about it, that it can cost us significantly on the other. So talk to me about those two things. Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, the most important document you should have done yesterday is a healthcare directive. So there's two components to a healthcare directive. One is selecting somebody that would be your decision maker if you couldn't speak for yourself for some reason. So it, again, it may be because something unexpected happens and or it could be a progressive disease like dementia, where you just, you don't have the capacity to make decisions. So who, when that happens, can be a loud voice for you, can be an advocate for you, and not saying what they want for you, but being able to speak for what your wishes are, what you have written in that document, and being able to advocate when that medical team comes to you and says, well, we can try one more thing. Our medical system is just like, we keep offering and keep offering until we can't anymore, but just because we can doesn't mean that we should. And so I think having somebody who can, who can hear that difference, who can be that voice for you. Then the second part of a healthcare directive is that goals of care piece. So 
this is something that your medical providers are going to look at. And they're going to, they're going to take that very seriously when it comes to treatment options that they're going to offer to your healthcare agent, because they want to make sure the goals that you have for yourself are aligned with the treatment options that they're offering. Mm -hmm. Um, the other one is financial power of attorney. So what this means is again, in that circumstance, this person could manage your finances for you. Um, I think of a, a lovely daughter that I worked with at the hospital and her father had a stroke. It was super unexpected. She was still working the week before. Um, and this all happened during COVID and she didn't have access to his finances. There was no healthcare directive. And, you know, she, she decided to, instead of going to the ICU and looking at a trach and, and tube feedings and all of that. She just knew that's not how her father would want to live. So as we started making this plan, we realized that nobody had access to his finances. So we had to go through this process of filing for guardianship. And while we were waiting for all of that to move forward, instead of him dying in a hospice home where we could have had lots of people around his bedside, or maybe not lots, it was still COVID, but you know, four at a time around the bedside, he died in the hospital where we only could allow one visitor due to the pandemic. Mm. So the cost, if we don't do this, is so significant to the, to the human. Yes. Um, I would also say meeting with an estate attorney. So this is not my area of expertise. I work alongside many incredible estate attorneys, but things like wills, trusts, if you are a parent of minor children, making sure that you have guardianship put in place, making sure that in that paperwork, there's things like who your kids' doctors are, what their allergies are, like little things like that, that only mom and dad are going to know. But that way you have a, um, you know, a really thoughtful and intentional plan for your kiddos if something unexpected were to happen. Um, funeral planning. That's a big one. And it can be a very hard decision for families to make about burial versus cremation, mm -hmm. you know, when, when, when they don't know what their loved one would want. And it's also, you know, what do you want to happen after that? Do you want a celebration of life? Like you were talking about, Yasa? do you want a funeral? Do you want some big party? Do you want a small intimate gathering? If you did get cremated, what do you want done with your remains? Oh, I'm very clear. I yeah. already know. <laughs> I know for sure that I do not want to have a funeral. Like I, I people who do it were going to be expressly against my wishes. I don't want any gatherings whatsoever. I want everyone to open a bottle of their favorite beverage from sparkling water to wine to whatever they want. Yeah. And I just want them to like have watch a beautiful movie and laugh their butts off. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, thoughtful, intentional planning around that. You know, also think about how many important things like that we have passwords to that someone might need to get into, Ooh. you know, so even like the passcode on your phone, there's apps that you can get on your phone that um, have very high security where you can keep all of your passwords and all of important information like that. And so, you know, give it to somebody you trust, your spouse, your sibling, your child, whatever. So that way, if that time comes, they can get in your phone and they can see all of the uh, different accounts, all of the different passwords. I mean, there's million, billions of dollars of unclaimed money just floating around in the world right now. And that could go to families and, and help with different things. But if you don't know where all of those things are, that's just absolutely crazy. So when is a good time, really, if you look at the age wise, when when do people normally start thinking about these things? And I know you would say it's never a bad time to start thinking about it. But really, when people should really, really start thinking about it, like, hey, right? For me, it was like the moment we had kids, it was like, wait a minute, what happens if something happens to us? Sure. Stuff like that. I mean, I can't help but say yesterday, like that is usually my response. Like it's never, it's never too early to do that. But, um, you know, for healthcare directives, anyone over the age of 18 should have one. You know, I, I believe the younger generation is more open to talking about the really hard stuff. And so if you have any really younger listeners out there, just think about if something, again, an accident, something unexpected were to happen to you. 
it would be your parents, or if you're married, your spouses, it would be people making those decisions for you. So you should always have a voice in, in what you want to happen for yourself. So healthcare directives, I would say, um, over the age of 18, you know, things like wills and trusts, what I've been educated on is as soon as you have assets. Mm -hmm. So if you have a home, if you have a vehicle, if you have money in a bank account, you should have, and it doesn't have to be a big complex will. I mean, there's plenty of even websites online where people can go online and type out a will there. Um, but I would say as soon as you start to have assets, you know, part of the um, component of a healthcare directive usually has a question or two about funeral planning. So, I mean, well, granted, I'm again, a unique kind of person in this where I know that my wish is I would like to donate my body to science. Mm. So I want to, I want to, to give in that way when I pass. And so I have already filled out the paperwork with the University of Minnesota. Um, and also a side piece, if you ever want to do that, you have to do it while you have full capacity. Your healthcare agent can never do that for you. A loved one can never do that for you. Um, but back to what I was saying, you can have a few words about that in your healthcare directive. And, you know, as you start to age, it is, you know, it starts to think about, should I prepay for something? Should I make some arrangements for something? Um, but I, I mean, I wouldn't make prearrangements at this point, because who knows if I'll still be living in Minnesota by the time I pass. Right, right. So um, in terms of the wills and healthcare directives and all of those things, so if, if you can just type it out, you know, with, let's say with people work with you and you help them develop it, because that's what you do so beautifully. Mm -hmm. um, do they, how do I know that that's an official document that someone didn't fill it out on my behalf? Like, do you have to have it notarized? What are those, some of those steps that if I work with you right now and how do I, and where do I keep that? Yeah, oh, I have it. So um, some people that I work with have worked with attorneys. Mm -hmm. And so what the attorney has done is they take care of the, you know, the legalizing component of it. And then I have created an eight page form based on all goals of care. And so we go through and we walk through that together. Um, again, related to what your wishes are, if you were at end of life, what would you want? What, what are, what would, what's your wishes for the care of your body after death? And I walk them through it and answer any questions that they have, especially about more of those end of life questions and what those things could look like. Um, I always highly encourage them to bring specific medical questions to their, their doctor, their trusted provider. But there's still very general information that that I can provide um, with my decade of experience working with um, death and dying. And so for some people, again, it's we complete that form and they hand it to attorney and they just attach that with um, their current healthcare directive or estate planning that they've been doing with them. For people who don't want to go through an attorney, I can come out to the house. We can um, formalize it right there. We can select your agents. I am a notary. So, I mean, I can walk in, sit with you and your family for a few hours, provide some education, have some good conversation as you guys are filling out the documents. And by the time I leave your house, we can notarize it and make it a formal and legal document that you That's have. That's amazing. And these services right now, people can book you on your website for, for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So again, whether they fall into that pre-planning component of it or really needing more intensive hands-on support as they're, um, you know, living with the life-limiting illness or nearing end of life, um, we can do those in either setting. I absolutely love that. One of the things that you talk about on your website is which is really beautiful there's a socratic method that i've learned about negative visualization when you imagine the worst all of a sudden you have so much more appreciation for everyday life and i teach it to my clients but it was an interesting perspective of death that you talked about was said when we actually talk about death and think about death mm -hmm. and you will say it's so much better uh, that we have so much more appreciation for life uh, tell me about that well so, I mean, I, I'm, I think the best place to start is I challenge you and your lovely listeners to think about a time in their life where maybe they had a near-death experience, 
or they are diagnosed with a significant illness or someone they love, or they just got off the phone call with a girlfriend whose husband had died. Mm. And all we want to do is go hug those that we love and tell them how much we love them. And you hear these sentiments of like, life is short, you know, like it, and, and that happens because death is in our vision point, right? It's in our peripheral vision. And so it's something that even as we're thinking about life, we're still very much alive, knowing that life is short, knowing that life is precious and it's unpredictable. And we don't, we don't know when our time is going to come, right? When we can keep that somewhere in our peripheral vision, it's going to empower us to take the risks, to give the extra hug, to make the time, to be grateful that we have this day, to be grateful that we can walk, to be grateful that we can eat food, um, the food that we love. I mean, it's just when it when it's there and we know that at any time we could lose all the rest of this. Hmm. And, and I also think though, it's important to, to talk about death anxiety because death anxiety is something that every single human has, even I do. My, my, my biggest fear surrounding death is losing my husband. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's multiple factors to, to our fears around death, whether it be, um, of the dying process itself, what happens to our body after we die, what happens to our soul or our spirit after we die. Like there's so many questions and, and, and different fears that can be associated with that, that, that result in this very anxious feeling surrounding death. Right. And many psychotherapists and lots of research shows that if we start to talk about it, it's going to help. It's going to help. Uh, I, I will never say it'll go away. It won't totally go away, but it'll help make it easier. It won't feel so scary. It won't, it, it, you know, we, we will feel more prepared the more that we talk about it. It's like, the analogy I have of, of working, um, in the hospital is so many times it would be like people were pushed into the deep end of the pool with no swimming lessons. Mm. So they're struggling to swim. Like they don't know how to stay afloat. They're barely keeping their head above water and it is traumatizing and scary and awful. And if we can start taking some swimming lessons, then so it will yeah, it'll be so much easier. Gosh, it's such a great example. It's, it's yeah. such a vivid example for for all of us. And you're really doing that in in terms of, you know, so called swimming lessons in yeah. for a better ending. Yeah. The company that you started that is really providing these services for us to address the dying, you've started something called uh, Courageous Conversations. So will you tell us what Courageous Conversations is and how can people really attend one of your events, whether it's virtual or in person? Sure. So, you know, Courageous Conversations came from the need again to just start being brave, start overcoming this death anxiety, start having these conversations. You know, it really was inspired by my time at the hospital. I felt like so many of the times I was being reactive to these conversations, not be not taking place ahead of time, not having these plans. That part of why I created a better ending was how can I step out of that merry-go-round that's not stopping? Mm -hmm. And how can I be proactive? How can I help people have these conversations so far in advance so that we were not in this reactive merry-go-round, right? And so courageous conversations is all about that. It's, you know, we talked briefly about how can I start reflecting about my own wishes? Um, we talk about how to have these conversations with those that you love. Mm -hmm. So whether that be you bringing this topic up because you want your kids or your loved ones to know where you sit, where you stand, what's important to you. Or maybe like one of your listeners that are in this sandwich generation that they're trying to better understand this for their parent, right? They're trying to know, how do, how do I bring this up with your parent? Um, and I give tips around that. 
you know, I, I know you asked this question earlier and I think we got sidetracked by something, but you know, my biggest tip, if you are someone listening and saying, how do I talk to my, my mom or my dad or my spouse about this is ask them mm. ask for permission. And I believe vulnerability invites vulnerability. So I think when we can just openly say, you know, I'm, I love you so much and, and I never want you to go anywhere. I never want to lose you, but I know that at some point we're all going to die. And as your daughter, as your spouse, as your son, I just, it's so important to me to know what it is that you want. And I know this conversation is hard, but can we talk about it? But with the courageous conversations, it's also how to have these conversations with your medical team and how to advocate for yourself. And then I go through um, some of the forms that we've already talked about, like financial power of attorney. We have a form in Minnesota called a POLST, which stands for Providers Orders of Life Sustaining Treatment. And we really walk through a healthcare directive. Um, if you join this Courageous Conversations, you get access to this document that I've created. Um, and so we walk through there. I give you tips of this is maybe what they're looking for here. This type of language would be helpful. And I think the Courageous Conversations is really helpful for people who maybe aren't ready for me to go and sit down in their home and sit with them and their loved one and really talk this out. You know, the workshop is really a good place to start getting this information, start hearing it, start getting some language. And again, if people need more support and need more hands-on support doing that, want to make it more individualized, I'd love to come out to people's homes. Let's sit around your dining room table and let's have this conversation together and, and I will help guide it for you. So that can also help take some of the pressure off their shoulders as well. You can learn really in detail about my services site. My website is www.abetterending.org. I also have a video on there. So if you're trying to introduce this to your family system, this is intimate and vulnerable work. And it's very important, like any therapeutic relationship that you, it is the right fit. It's the right personality fit for you. So that's on there for people to, to show their loved ones. And I also have a resource list on there too. So if people want to learn about other aspects of death, dying, and grief, I have um, nationwide and community-based resources on the website. Folks, if you're listening to this, now you understand why I'm so passionate about this topic, why I think Rosie is the utmost expert. And from just her delivery, you know that she's nothing but pure love and nurturing. And who else would you want? in a situation and, and such a sensitive topic such as that. So I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing and for um, just for, for who you are, because I know you personally and I just love who you are. So Rosie, I cannot thank you enough for your time, for your heart and the work you're doing. It, it's, it was, a, like I said, a, a true honor to be here with you and talk with your listeners as this is a topic that's relevant for everyone. And if there's any way that I can help make something that is so hard, even the slightest bit easier, I'm here for it and I'm committed to it. So you are so beautiful. God bless you. Thank you so much. Well, there you have it, everyone. Until next time, make sure you have your healthcare directive. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there you have it, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. It means the world. Please share with anyone that might find this useful and go ahead to all iTunes stations and please give us a five-star rating. So much love for you all. Please, please, please know that everything can be different. You're worthy. You're good enough. And let's up-level together.